0: JBS presents the Hampton Synagogue's Author Discussion Series with Rabbi Avraham Bronstein.
1: My name is Glenn Dorskin. Welcome to the Hampton Synagogue. The Hampton Synagogue Author Discussion Series, now in its 27th year, is a cultural highlight of our summer season, both for members of our congregation and our many visitors from across the Hamptons. I am proud to serve as series chair, and it is my great pleasure to share our past season with you, our global congregation, in celebration of Jewish Book Month. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you.
0: I appreciate um, it. When we were discussing the program before, um, you had said that you'd begin the program with a short reading from the book. So why don't you set that up? What I'm, are you reading for us?
1: So I'm reading to you from the prologue. And you will cut me off if I go too long, because that's uh, a, a bit of a problem here once I get in the groove. Um, but this is, this is the beginning of the book. And it, it sets up, in my mind, sort of the, the fundamental uh, operating principle that Donald Trump relies on and so hopefully that'll be clear uh, and it's topical for a few reasons. What do you need me to say? It was May 5th 2016, two days after the Republican primary in Indiana. I sat in the back of a yellow taxi cab as it rolled down Fifth Avenue, my computer open on my lap and a phone held to my ear. The likely Republican nominee for president was on the other end of the call. I had reached out to his staff for comment about a fresh round of support he had received from David Duke a former Ku Klux Klan grand wizard, and one time Louisiana politician, who had recently alleged that opposition to the Trump campaign came from quote unquote Jewish extremists and quote Jewish supremacists, unquote. The Anti-Defamation League, as it did at other points during that campaign, called on the candidate to quote, make unequivocally clear, unquote, that he rejected Duke's statement. Oh, sorry, I'm a really low talker. I apologize, so I'm gonna do my, I'm gonna do my absolute best. It'll sound like I'm shouting. Donald Trump greeted me and then cut quickly to his point. I'm here with my two Jewish lawyers, he said, appearing to refer to David Friedman and Jason Greenblatt, both of whom handled matters for his company, the Trump Organization. I have a statement. Are you ready, he asked. I waited, my fingers hovering over the keyboard. Anti-Semitism has no place in our society, which should be united, not divided, he said, as I typed his words. Then a pause, a pause that went on a beat too long. That's it, I asked. Another pause. Then Trump asked, what do you need me to say? Trump was notorious for seeking cues that would help him please his audience, but in this context, his uncertainty threw me. Knowing what to say to show you wanted to separate yourself from the nation's most famous white supremacist should not be hard. I reiterated what I had told his campaign aides, that I was seeking a response or reaction to Duke's anti-Semitic remarks about Jewish extremists. Trump seemed to realize why his initial statement was deficient and added that he, quote, totally disavows, unquote, what Duke said. A few seconds later, we hung up. What do you need me to say? In some ways, it was the question that informed all Trump had done as a businessman, where success had made him a recurring character in New York City's tabloid newspapers. Young Donald Trump had been athletic as a teenager and then aspired to a career in Hollywood. He ultimately fulfilled his father's desire for a successor in the family business, real estate. But what the son really always wanted was to be a star. So that question guided Trump to cast himself as he preferred to be seen a take-charge billionaire in a leather-backed seat on the reality television show, The Apprentice. He was usually selling, saying whatever he had to in order to survive life in 10-minute increments. He was also guided by a belief in repetition. Over and over, he would convey to employees and friends a version of the same idea. If you say something often enough, it becomes true. Together, these instincts helped him to evade public and private danger over the course of nearly 50 years and then became the foundation for his approach to politics as a candidate and then a president and a former president. Thank you.
0: Even in that prologue, there's a little bit more than about you and your thoughts about the larger Trump picture than we get um, reading reports or, um, that, or reading news stories that have your byline. So I'm wondering, just from your perspective, what's the difference between writing daily stories, um, reportage stories on one hand, and writing a book like this that tries to frame the entire presidency on the other?
1: I'm not going to say what initially came to, to mind, but book writing is um, <laughs> book writing is a very difficult thing. Um, I had written one book previously with a, uh, a friend and former colleague, and it was 20 years ago this year, um, actually a few months ago, 20 years ago, uh, about a kidnapping in Utah, a young woman named Elizabeth Smart, who some of you may have heard of. And, uh, and she had just been found, and, and I wrote it with this colleague. And that was, that was a very quickly done book. This this took a long time. It was a lot of research. I had a fabulous research assistant. I had a fabulous um, uh, freelance editor. But it, it's just a, f- a very different thing to find the tempo and the structure and not be repetitive. Um, a news story, I, I studied fiction writing. That was what I did at Sarah Lawrence College. And when I went into newspapers, which was Frankly, by accident, um, in 1996 at the New York Post, I started as a clerk. I then had to learn an entirely different kind of writing, and you know, I I had started out writing long, and then I suddenly had to, you know at the New York Post in those days, and I have no idea what it is now, but in those days, a 400-word story was long, and so it was it was very hard to rejigger my thinking, and so for something like this, um, I'm writing about one of the most written about people on the planet and finding something that felt fresh and different, um, that had a through line, deciding what not to put in the book, um, you know, for space, deciding what had to go to accommodate something else, was incredibly challenging and I still probably three times a week think about something that I wish I had put in the book, uh, but it's very long and you'll all thank me that I didn't put in more because it's a very heavy book. This is uh, volume one you're saying? It's a, what's that? It's volume one. Well, I didn't say that, but it is a very, it is a very heavy book. So it was just, it was just different than anything else I had ever done. And, and as I said, there have been so many books written about Donald Trump that um, I wanted something that would be durable and that, you know, could, could last into the future and and hopefully this will were you you know by the end of
0: the Trump presidency you know 2019 2020 were you already thinking about what the book was going to look like or what the story was or what the themes were going to be or did you like do it afterwards
1: certainly not 2019 um, 2020 uh, I had hoped to start working on this during the transition period and there was no transition <laughs> period um, you know there was uh, there was no there was election day november 3rd 2020 and the early hours of the following morning trump announced that he had won the election which despite the fact that arizona had been called for biden and um by fox and and then it was just one day after another of trump trying to find ways to stay in office and and telling lies about the 2020 election and so I was I was needed on my day job and I was doing my day job and I didn't really have time to think about this and so I, I turned to this in earnest in the um, I, I would say probably February 2021 after the second impeachment trial um, but you know it, 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 the the thing about Trump and writing a book about Trump is there's always some new the Trump story never ends I mean sort of the, the it really does it hasn't I mean, ended for well, sure well look I mean everything ends eventually but the the for instance, one of my one of my heroes, Wayne Barrett, who did some of the best earliest reporting, and it was really, you know, definitive and sort of the ur text for the rest of us on Trump in the 1970s at the Village Voice. Um, he published a book on Trump. I think it was in 1993, and it was you know Trump: The Deals and the Downfall. But it came out after Trump was already at least pitching himself as on the upswing from his from his bankruptcy, and so. He's just in this constant state of regeneration, and he creates all these events that become consuming. So, so you know, let's take a question along the same lines. So let's say somebody's
0: been following you know, Trump through the pages of The New York Times, reading Maggie Haberman's bylines on a daily, sometimes twice daily basis. Um, what do they get from this book that's not in the regular daily reporting that you were doing over the course of the entire Trump presidency?
1: So, I would, go, I would refer you to the, the Joe Klein review that you read, um, you know, this was, this was a book that was not aimed to be, here's the 70 scoops that, you know, there, there's plenty of material that's new and fresh in the book, um, but, you know, reporting for a book takes time. It's very different than the daily report. For the daily report, we have 24 hours, and frankly, in, in this era, we file, you know, earlier than that because mm-hmm. we are filing for uh, the website. Um, some things took time to report out, some things took time, very long time, to confirm in some cases. Um, but what you will get here, I mean, it, the, the pages that, the, of the Times that I'm, that I'm writing about now are really, here's what's happening with you know the Jack Smith investigations, here's what's happening with the campaign. This is a holistic look, as much as possible, from the forces that made Trump in New York and what that meant and what he brought to the White House.
0: How much additional reporting did you do to put this book together?
1: I did a lot. I, but, you know, and, but some of it, doing additional reporting doesn't mean that I necessarily you know, found new ground every time. It just means that I was doing reporting to satisfy myself that I understood something or that I was you know, have, appreciating a full context or I was getting a different view from someone who hadn't spoken to me in the past. Um, but I did a ton of reporting on it. It was, it was, it was a, it, there, were, there were many, many, many interviews. There was a ton of um, research. I spent a ton of time going through news clips, as did my freelance editor, from the 80s and the 90s. And one of the things that emerged, and, and this was said to me by somebody who worked for Trump uh, decades ago, but it really proved true, reading these, these clips, it's, he has a handful of moves, and he just uses them over and over and over. So for instance, there was a, a 1995 uh, article in uh, the New York Times Magazine by Trump, it was, it was essays, and the, the edition of the magazine was called The Rich. And Trump at that point was trying to sell himself as having returned, and he was, he was back. And the entire thing was not about you know how he makes his money or how he runs his business. It was it was just grievance. It was this person, um, you know, messed with me, and this person did this terrible thing to me, and I I had a leaker in my midst. And if you closed your eyes, it was something that he was tweeting, right? Thirty years later, so. Um, But that took a lot of time to pick at these threads. So,
0: so then to summarize, the big idea, like kind of the framing that puts this whole book together, is that to really understand Trump, you had to have kind of known where he came from and understand him in the context of the New York that he grew up in.
1: That's exactly right. And he is New York City can be very provincial in a lot of ways, and and Trump, in many ways, is very provincial. Uh, He, you know, he likes to eat fast food, and he that's you know he he, it, it. he, he loves McDonald's and and he likes to go watch UFC fights and you know his cultural references and touchstones are often from the 1980s and uh, you know he he's obsessed with matching he was obsessed with matching Elton John's crowd records at some of the arenas where he was <laughs> holding rallies and he would talk about that so mm-hmm. and I actually reported on I reported on that with a colleague a couple of years ago so you know he this is this is just who he is, but a lot of the forces that you saw animate him in the White House, uh, race, um, class, um, a lot of this comes right out of, of, uh, you know, a certain era in New York.
0: So as you were covering Trump on the campaign and then at the beginning when he was in the White House, did you... Catch that very quickly. Was that something that came to you very early on? And you know, do you think that that gave you a bit of an advantage over other national reporters who were coming to Trump from other contexts and they didn't really know that side of him because they weren't with him at the beginning?
1: I definitely think that. Um, well, I take a little exception at the with him, but having lived in New York City, um, yeah, I mean, and and worked at the New York Post for 10 years, I had a, I just had a very different perspective. Um, And I I think, I do think that that was helpful in terms of my frame of reference. Um, One thing that I didn't say about the forces that helped shape him is just this tremendous culture of civic corruption that existed in New York City in the 1970s and 80s, uh, which really shaped his view, and frankly, long before that, but it shaped his view of what government was. I mean, in his view of how government behaves, and he's very about it and the things he says publicly, everything is a giant transaction. It's all, you know, it's like when he talks about, he, he picked a fight this week that was incredibly counterproductive with the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds. And he is he, openly saying, I, I supported her, I helped her get elected, uh, which is not untrue. He did help her get elected, but I helped her get elected and she's not endorsing me. And you know, that's disloyal. And that's how he, all actions are, you know, supposed to be returnable favors. And so, and that's very much how, uh, you know, major figures in New York City, especially in government, operated. And he went to DC with this mindset that this was how things were going to be. And so I wrote a story with colleagues in 2017, it was December 2017, uh, where we talked about how he would tell this story that AIDS recalled as him describing some figure in New York City who would wield a baseball bat from behind a desk. I believe it was Meade Esposito who he was talking about, who was the Brooklyn Democratic Party chair. And it wasn't a baseball bat, it was a cane. But regardless, <laughs> that was his idea of sort of what executive power looked like. And and so we did try to make that clear to people in the pages of the paper of just how sort of relatively small the, the world uh, that he came from was and how he understood it to function. But I, I think it was... I think it was very difficult for people in Washington to process uh, President Donald Trump.
0: Do you think over the course of your time in Washington, following him on a daily basis and writing as much as you did, do you think that you brought the other Washington press corps along a little bit?
1: No, but I think that um, <laughs> but I wasn't. And in fairness, I wasn't there daily. I covered uh, I covered the White House from New York, uh, which is not an ideal way to cover a White House. But I, had, I have a family, and we weren't going to move. Um, and when, the, when he won, you know, a lot of expectations around what the following four years were likely to look like were, were suddenly reset, so, and I felt an obligation to, to sort of help explain what I knew and to report what I knew. Um, but I, you know, I think that, I think he was such a shock to the system that I, I just think that it, it people need to experience things themselves to understand them and so I, you know, I, I remember trying to explain to people uh, in Washington, my colleagues, uh, with, with another colleague of mine who had covered the campaign with me, what they were likely to experience covering a Trump White House and I felt as if, you know, <laughs> I was face, facing a lot of skepticism from people who I, I think thought we must be exaggerating but it was all true. It's funny, so it's not on the cards,
0: but just something which occurred to me as you were just speaking. Um, About a year into the Trump presidency, uh, Benjamin Wittes, who works at the Brookings Institute um, for um, for Lawfare, he wrote a book um, about Trump trying to explain how Trump operated you know, politically. And his frame of reference was the late 17, early 1800s, when there was no bureaucracy in Washington, DC. And things happened because the By president Fiat, yeah. or the Secretary of State just said it was going to happen. There was nobody else to process things. And he was using that as his model. Uh, you're saying it's much more personal. There's no large constitutional question about how government should run. It was just one person kind of. Doing
1: things. As one of my colleagues often says, he's never been caught reading the Federalist Papers. I. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <at all. laughs> uh, he is a businessman, who spent very little time thinking about what governing was like or what being president would actually be like uh, before he won, and and he spent a lot of time trying to bend the presidency to his will, and as. I'm fairly sure that we had this line in the paper at one point, but he had clearly, at minimum, wrestled it to a draw by the end of 2017. Mm -hmm.
0: As you were researching the book and putting it together, I'm curious if there was anything new that you came across that really took your breath away, um, that you didn't know before that really made you stop, or maybe something which you did know, something you had reported before, but because of the way that the book is being framed, you suddenly saw in a new light in a way that was really shocking to you.
1: So I'd say there were were two, well, there there were many things along those lines, but two I'll isolate. One was something that I put out uh, eight months before uh, the book came out, which was that Trump had been flushing documents down toilets, um, both in the White House and then on foreign trips, which, you know, you first hear it and it sounds like, I mean, it's... It's unusual, but you. you <laughs> but it initially it was sort of oh well this you know he's known for ripping up papers and this is what he does and my colleague Annie Carney had written a fantastic story for Politico about the fact that he does that uh, years earlier, but it it took on a different context um, because of the documents investigation, uh, which when I reported this we had just learned that. The, the archives had had to fight to get all of these boxes of material back, so that was that was one thing. Um, because it is, he's he's a, a person about whom a lot is known, uh, and so learning something new is 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 interesting. Um, he had a, a girlfriend um, in the 1990s, a, a model, a biracial model named named Cara Young, and he was dating her. Um, his relationship with her overlapped with his relationship with Melania, then Canas um, b- before they were married, uh, and she had a white father and a, a black mother. And Trump met her parents at one point, and uh, then joked to her a few joked to her a few weeks later. Uh, you know, you get your you get your brains from uh, you you get your beauty from your mom and your brains from your dad, the white side. Uh, and that was a, a pretty explicit thing mm-hmm. to hear him say, so, or to hear that he said. So it
0: was kind of shocking in that way. Um, thinking more about um, you, a little bit less about the book and the Trump presidency, I'm curious if you can speak for a few minutes about how covering Trump through the campaign and in the White House uh, changed the trajectory of your life and your career.
1: So I, um, it's, it's a strange feeling. I. Um, there, are, there are a bunch of people in, these cro- in this crowd who I know from different walks of life, uh, my life, in, uh, in reporting. And I was a courts reporter for a time and I was not especially good at it and I revere anyone who can cover the Justice Department and do really effectively at it. I was not one of them. But um, but I, I spent a really long time at the New York Post and the Daily News and then Politico between 2010 and 2015. Um, Covering Hillary Clinton and covering uh, you know the two thousand eight presidential race. Covering I spent a lot of time covering Obama's campaign. I covered Romney's campaign. I covered Obama's re-election, and I covered the Clinton-Lazio Senate race in two thousand. I covered rebuilding at the Trade Center for three years. Uh, I was in Lower Manhattan when the second tower fell, uh, and I'm one of those people who was very very uh, deeply impacted by the events of that day and and the aftermath and. Um, what I will be remembered for is covering Donald Trump. And so it's, uh, it's, a strange, it's a strange feeling. I'm very grateful to have had this opportunity. It is, um, it is a privilege to, to do this job. It is a privilege to, to get to cover power and to try to explain power and hold power to account. Um, but uh, this obviously became hypercharged. And I write about this in the book, that you know, Trump kind of turns everyone around him into a character in his movie. And that, that happened to me uh, in a way that I just wasn't expecting. And so it's, uh, it, it's, been, a, it's been a very um, intense eight years.
0: I'm sure. Uh, I'm wondering you know, the, um, the notoriety that you have now, uh, the fact that you're famous or infamous, depending on which circle you're, you're you traveling through. Thank um, you know, I'm wondering how that affects how you do your job as a journalist or how that's changed how, what you do as a journalist. In what ways does it make your life easier? In what ways does it make your life harder?
1: That's a good question. Um, look, I, it's, it's easier when people know your work um, and if they if they respect your work, they are more likely to talk to you. That's always very helpful. Um, and you know, that's that's a that's a piece of it. Um, you know, it's to to the point that you alluded to. People have a lot of very defined opinions about my work, and um, and they're absolutely entitled to them. That's that's their view. Um, but some people, uh, you know. Some people become harder to talk to uh, in those dynamics, but you know it's uh, more often than not. People, I think, let let the work speak for itself, and um, and generally uh, have expressed appreciation that that they think it's thorough or they think it's fair, and that they learn things. Um, in that way, it's. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that because I've been covering the same thing for a very long time, um, but. You know, I, I think that it's it's helpful. It is helpful if people, at least, are familiar with your work. That is always helpful. I mean, I think one of the hardest things as a young journalist, it was very hard for me, was people essentially asking themselves, "Why should I talk to you?" And you have to convince people why it's you know, uh, mm-hmm. you're you're why they can why they you're you're going to be careful and sensitive with information. You're truthful. You're fair. Um, but it's harder to do when you're starting out.
0: You no, know, and going from two thousand and twenty into two thousand and twenty-one, I'm sure you had the sense that the Trump story was kind of to like low ebb or maybe even die out a I little bit. I know, I
1: did not because you did not. because Janu- January January sixth happened, uh, two thousand and twenty-one, and it was such a remarkable day in this country, uh, and in this country's history, uh, and and showed so profoundly how many people were stirred. I and mean, they've they've said this; these defendants who were at the Capitol as part of this pro-Trump mob, a number of people have said they were inspired by Trump to go do it. And so it was what had long been more of a hypothetical than not about whether words could stir action became very clear. And so again, based on these people, what these people said. Um, and so I did not think if this Trump story was going to end because as to what I said before, It doesn't end because he refuses to cede anyone else's perspective.
0: Part of the framing of the book we just discussed a few minutes ago is that it turned out that you had a special insight into Trump's character and the way that he operated because you had a sense of his context and that gave you maybe a certain understanding in 2016 as he was running and then in 2017 as he took office uh, that other people that were following politics on a national level maybe didn't have. Based on that understanding and based on the way things have been playing out, what do you think that you know, the news media kind of writ large should or shouldn't be doing this time around, 2024, that they did do in 2020 or 2016?
1: Well, a couple of things. 2020 was such an anomalous. Election year because of the pandemic, so I, I don't, I can't even think what lessons can be learned from, you know, campaign-specific lessons. There, there are other lessons, uh, I think, but that's a separate issue. Uh, you know, in 2016, there was a, the the constant refrain is, his rallies were aired too much, um, he was given too much airtime, he was given too much coverage, um, Fox drowned him out in the primaries, and. You know, I I understand all of those statements but I would argue that actually, uh, you know, I remember writing about a story with a colleague in, I'm pretty sure it was November of 2015, where we spent 90, we spent a week inside 95,000 words that he spoke that week and we were pretty clear about his use of repetition and what he was doing and it was around that time that he proposed a ban on... Muslims entering the US, and we covered that pretty aggressively. We covered his racist statements. We covered allegations of sexual harassment. Um, We covered the Access Hollywood tape rather extensively. And I don't think it's that voters didn't know all of these things. I think it's that voters didn't care. And I think that that gets very upset, and and so then the media gets blamed. which doesn't mean the media doesn't make mistakes. There, there are other things that I could point to, but they're not sort of the broad stroke question that you're asking. For 2024, I don't know. I think that, I think that in the in the midterm cycle, m- most of the news media was quite rigorous about framing. You know, and I don't. I, I should use a different word. Making clear the context that what Trump was saying about the 2020 election was false, and that it had seeped into the fabric of the Republican Party. And I think the media is still very good about that. Uh, I think that there has been a bit of a, an adjustment in writing about a, a twice indicted, twice impeached frontrunner. runner. Um, I think that that's, that's different. But, um, but I actually think the media's done quite well. And, I, and, and the media's job is not to Force an outcome. The media's job is just to, to cover what is happening. Okay. Thank you so much, Maggie Haberman.